0: For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com.
1: Thanks for tuning in to the Southern Way Hunting Podcast on the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and on this show, you'll hear hunting tactics, stories, and strategies from hunters across the South. Our aim is to sharpen our skills as hunters and outdoorsmen, become more efficient and effective in pursuit of our craft, and even have a little fun while we're at it. And of course, no matter the pursuit, we focus on doing things the Southern Way. Welcome back to the Southern Way Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Raley. And uh, guys, it is October. We are looking at, uh, for many of us here in the South, we are staring down the pre-rut here in just a couple of weeks. I know for us in Georgia, uh, where I am personally, game time is going to be that, you know, November 10th through the 17th or so time frame uh, as far as targeting rutting bucks. And so I'm getting pretty pumped up for that. I've actually got a hunting trip before that Heading up to Wisconsin, going to chase some deer around in the Midwest. Uh, maybe swing through another state on my way back home. We'll have to see how quickly I can get it done. If it's anything like last year, I'll probably have some opportunities early that I will probably botch. and <laughs> It'll be opportunity number three that I finally am able to take advantage of. But but hey, we're right here uh, getting into the pre-rut time frame Uh, We're starting to find scrapes and rubs out at the lease, scrapes and rubs out on some public land. So uh, things are really, really starting to get good. I know for some of you guys, though, uh, we are still quite a ways off from any kind of rutting activity. You guys, especially Alabama, panhandle of Florida, parts of Mississippi, parts of Louisiana. You guys have got to wait until that December, January, or if you hunt where I do down in the deep, deep south Alabama, you're looking at February. Honestly, you know, for us, February 4th is kind of the day that we tend to see our bucks on their feet. That is our equivalent, I guess you could say, of November 7th in the Midwest. And so, but no matter where you are, man, hunting is getting really, really good. I know you Alabama guys are actually opening up this weekend, so pretty pumped for, for that. And I may actually sneak across the state line here to get in a, a hunt or two before I head up to Wisconsin. But, guys, we got a good episode for you this week. I had a chance to catch up with a guy, uh, Brandon Barlow. He goes by carolina__reaper315 on Instagram. And, man, he's not been around very long in the sense of, like, producing content for very long, but he is putting out some really, really good stuff. I've really appreciated a lot of his short videos and the reels that he's putting out as far as getting out good concise whitetail content and the dude's a killer like he just gets it done we had a conversation on the phone back in September when we were trying to schedule the first time we were going to record and he was like man I just you know I feel really good about um about heading into this early season I think I'm gonna find some success and sure enough man the dude went out and killed a deer like September 25th or something like that exactly where he thought things could go down he wasn't in there specifically for the buck that he ended up taking as this one was a surprise but he was in there because of historical data with this area and with specific deer in this area and when they tend to show up and that's what today's episode is all about how to use historical data to get on good bucks now for me this has been a growth process over the last couple of years i got into the thing where i was chasing trail camera images or chasing sign around, the problem would be, hey, I'd go out and hunt, I'd check my cameras, I see something good on a camera, I find some good sign, I maybe get a morning hunt in, and then boom, I've got to wait another five, six days before I can get out into the woods, or even even another two weeks before I can get out there again. Well, guess what? By the time I got back out there, That area had dried up. The sign wasn't fresh anymore. I'm not getting pictures on that camera anymore in daylight. The deer are on to a different pattern. And that creates this cycle in me and in a lot of guys that I know of following trail camera intel or following outdated sign and just always being a little bit behind the game when it comes to getting on the bucks that we're after. Now, there's a way to break the cycle, though, and that is to look at historical data. You know, keeping good notes on where we find sign and when when certain areas turn on, keeping track of our trail camera pictures and saying, okay, this buck shows up, man, October 17th through the 25th. He's here in this area, and then he's gone. But I know I've got this window of time. And then using that the following year and trying to capitalize on it then, trusting that those same areas or those same bucks are going to be on right around the same time each and every year. And in that way, you can actually get ahead of the movement. You can be there the day that that buck decides to show up if you know the window or the time frame within which he typically does. We get all into that. We talk about Brandon's strategy for uh, creating mock scrapes, which is one tactic that I use a good bit, but I hear folks say all the time that doesn't work in the South. Well, yeah, it, it does. There are some things you need to take into account, though. So we talk all about that. This is a strategy-heavy episode, so if you have any follow-up questions or thoughts that come to mind, feel free to shoot me a message on Instagram, at the Southern Way Hunting Pod. Or if you have more questions for Brandon, I'm going to try to line him up, get him back on the show here in the next couple of weeks. And if you've got specific questions that you would like me to ask him, please do let me know those. Again, you can find me on Instagram, the Southern Way Hunting Pod, or you can also find me on my other account, How to Hunt Deer, that's for the How to Hunt Deer podcast, which is not based on the South, but you know, good content for pretty much wherever you are. But that's it for this week's intro. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, on the line with me today, I've got Mr. Brandon Barlow, also known as Carolina Reaper 315 on Instagram. Brandon, this has been a long time coming, man.
2: Yeah, hey, Josh, thanks for having me. I'm grateful to be here. I
1: appreciate it, man. I'm I'm pumped that we could have this conversation. We we talked on the phone before and we were trying to set up a date you were busy I was busy there were things going on uh so we couldn't quite get it on the calendar but man as soon as we started talking before I was like I need to hear more about all of this stuff because there are some things that you do that are pretty unique um there's a story about I believe it's your grandpa's journal that is just incredible that I want to learn more about so we got a lot of stuff to cover and not a ton of time to do it but before we get to that stuff Why don't you give us a rundown of who you are, what you do, and maybe kind of how you got into hunting and kind of evolved to where you are today.
2: Sure. Thanks. Again, I appreciate all that, and uh, it's great to be on here. And for anybody who hasn't subscribed yet, please do that. Um, Check out Josh's channel and uh, give them a follow. But, yeah, so Brandon Barlow, 46 years old here in April, coming up. So I'm getting up there, getting long in the snout but uh (laughs) i'm uh i live in the carolinas presently i've been here for 15 years i currently am the east coast operations director for an electric utility uh basically we have solar wind thermal coal a bunch of different assets i'm specifically over the solar assets here in the east coast usa so that keeps me pretty busy um I live in the Carolinas, as I said, for 15 years. I moved here from upstate New York, born and raised in the Adirondacks, and that's kind of where I got my start in hunting. Uh, my family has a long history in hunting, both sides of my family. The story that you alluded to was my grandfather's on my mother's side. He uh, was a lineman, and they hunted the Adirondacks through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and uh, he, he journaled a lot of that. And, uh, and that were the journals I were, I was showing you when we spoke before. And, um, I'm going to be releasing some of that information, uh, after this season. Um, you know, as we kind of go and on my father's side, uh, they were all hunters too. They had more of the, uh, hunting camp vibe where usually one family member or another had a camp or a couple of family members had a camp, Southern tier, or whatever. And, you know, we would go and, spend a week or two here and there at that camp and it was more of a traditional uh, my father's side was more traditional with the hunting camp whereas my mother's side my grandfather Bert, who who kind of brought me up taught me how to hunt he they were more of like the uh, I guess today you call them like the lone wolf you know standing on a tree branch with a linesman belt because they were all power company workers and uh, climbing with their spurs, so they were more like the lone wolf saddle hunter like we all know today, and then on the dad side, the hunting camp background, so got a little bit of both, and uh, I actually try to to keep both traditions going
1: uh, today. Man, that that's so good. I, I'm right there with you. Like, there are hunts for my year and places where I hunt where it's the super mobile, super aggressive. Um, Big bucks or nothing, like really getting after it kind of hunt, you know, eat, sleep, and breathe in the woods basically the whole time. And then there are those other hunts, man, where it's like, you know what, I go sit in the box blind with some Pop-Tarts and a Coke and I've got a kid with me or, you know, I know I got my dad in the box blind, you know, 300 yards from me. And we're just, we're hunting the old school way of the traditional deer camp kind of thing. And we come back early and we eat chili and, you know, do all the deer camp stuff. And so I I think that's so important.
2: Yeah, the young guys get to gut all the deer and drag all the deer and they get to dump the bacon grease and <laughs>
1: right, right. Load up the truck. yeah. Right. And I yep. <laughs> I wanna pass I, I'm so glad to hear that you're, you know, trying to keep both traditions alive, man. That's something I wanna pass down to my kids is you know, we, we I take them with me and we, we hunt both ways for them. And, you know, I think at this point they really like the hunting camp way where we come back and we watch football in the middle of the day and we have a big lunch and we take a nap and all of that. They love that, that method of hunting, but I think they'll come to appreciate the other as they uh, grow and start finding some success using it out in the woods. But, uh, man, let's talk a bit about your hunting situation right now. Um, Last time we talked, you were like, I feel very confident going into the season. Well, here we are, October 3rd, and you've got a beautiful buck on the ground already. So, tell me about where you're hunting. I mean, not, not super specific, but... You hunting public, private, mix of both, highly pressured, lightly pressured. What does that look like?
2: Sure, yeah. So uh, this year, just to kind of, I guess, let me let me give a, a quick thirty second kind of to top to finish off who I am. So last year, I never really had a social media presence too much. Last year, from some coaxing from some friends, I was uh, convinced to kind of come out from under a rock and and make a channel and, and start talking about some of the scouting stuff I do and things like that, and started listening to other podcasts and stuff last year. So what I decided to do a year ago was just kind of, if anybody who's followed my channel um, has seen, is I just kind of chronicled my year from the day after hunting season ended pretty much, what I do for postseason scouting each month going into the months, what I expect to see on my mock scrapes, kind of just a breakdown of what's happening on my cameras and and my deer chores from week to week, month to month, that led me up to the season, that led me up to feeling confident, that led me up to killing the buck that I killed last Monday. And so for anybody who hasn't followed my channel, um, whether you decide to follow me or not, if you go to my channel, you should find a lot of resources on there. You know, I, I take it for beginners from spraying your trail cameras with permethrin to more advanced stuff uh, when it comes to hanging cameras and bedding areas and stuff like that so to kind of go from there yeah the last time we spoke I was feeling pretty confident a lot has happened since then Um, (laughs) you know every deer season is crazy and so um, this season I had more velvet good bucks on camera this summer than I've ever had it was my best summer for velvet Picks. I've never been a guy to follow if you're looking for those um, big summer side of the highway pictures or, you know, spotlighting that night or big velvet trail camera pictures. I'm never your guy for that. Uh, Generally speaking, I'm not following summer bucks. So this year just happened to be a good year for that. I branched out, picked up some new properties, found some good summer bucks, and when we spoke, I had the normal confidence that I had going into every year, which is my hunting over historical data and hunting over scrapes and hunting animals that I know survived last season. But in addition to that, I was feeling super confident because I also had, I think, five summer hammer on camera. And so I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. Like this is going to be an awesome year. So (laughs) In true, in true deer hunter fashion, you know, um, one of my bucks, uh, someone let their deer dogs go, uh, early in August. So to answer your question about pressure, all of the properties I hunt are pretty much super pressure. It's what I call super pressure. You know, back home in the Adirondacks, we had high pressure, a lot of hunters, a lot of deer drives, a lot of human pressure, but here we have packs of 50, 60, 80 dogs sometimes. And so, you know, that's, a different level of pressure altogether. So um, one of my bucks got uh, displaced by hounds in August. He never came back. I lost nine cameras and another buck in the forest fires in New Hanover County. Um, oh man. I lost. Yeah. The, both different. One of the first hurricane that came through, I lost the a big eight pointer. Um, I ended up re- relocating him, but I lost the big eight pointer and then this last hurricane, um, the literal bed I had a camera on, I had a buck that was sleeping in that bed, and that bed is still underwater. So,
1: wow. <laughs> you
2: know, that's just, and I ended up losing every single one of the bucks I had this summer. So, you know, um, that's how it goes with deer hunt And that's why I don't play the summer game, because your best case scenario is you make it through all of that, and then October gets here, and he moves anyway. <laughs> right. So, right. Uh, you know, I just I don't mess with summer bucks. I love to see friends send me pictures and stuff. But to me, that's like a picture of a buck in the middle of the night. I just don't care about July bucks too, too much. You know, it's fun. and uh, But that's about it for me. So going into this season, the last week of September, September 25th, I actually took PTO that week. Uh, that was my first day of PTO, the day that I killed that buck. And, uh, that was not a deer I knew about, but he was running with a buck I was expecting. Um, which probably raises some questions, but basically I had a spike horn that I grew on a mock scrape, uh, grew him. He was a six point the second year, the second year he dispersed third year. He came back. He was a small eight point. And he came back the same time he came back as a two-year-old on the last week of September. It was 9.23, and then it was 9.25. So I had a pretty good feeling that he, as a four-year-old, was going to be back the, the last week of September on this island where I was hunting. So that was my entire motivation to hunting that spot on that Monday, even though I did not know that point um, was in the area. I knew he was alive. I got pictures of him when he uh, lost his antlers early in the year. I knew it was him. Uh, as anybody who obsesses over deer can identify their deer, it was him. And uh, so I was expecting him that last week in September. And uh, sure enough, um, he showed up pretty much on cue. I don't know how long he had been there. I did have him on an SD camera the day before. It looked like I was a day late, but. That buck typically hangs out for about two weeks, so I was on, like, his second day of his two-week little excursion into my island there and uh, saw him at noon, knew he was on the island, Um, had some struggle getting into my tree where I needed to be, but ended up getting into my tree. That deer ultimately, the whole story is on my page, that deer ultimately came out at around 4.30 and... uh, I was fully drawn on him. Uh, You know, I was settling into the shot and I caught movement behind him. And the 10 pointer that I shot was behind him. And I never knew the 10 pointer existed. Uh, It's possible he could have been a nine pointer from last year. I got to dig into that data a little more. But uh, didn't really expect the 10 pointer. He was just kind of a bonus deer that was with my deer. And that happens a lot in the pre rut, you know, uh, where where a buck you might be expecting dragged another buck. Usually, you know, ninety percent of the time it's a smaller buck with him. But, yeah. Right. Um, you know, it's a, you know, uh, it's a six point that steps out second, but that wasn't the case. In fact, there was a third one, and after I shot and I heard the ten point crash, the eight pointer that I was expecting ran to my right. Well, behind where they came out of, a third deer ran. And I heard his antlers hitting tree branches. So um, so I think there were three deer in that group, you know, my eight, the ten I shot, and then a mystery buck.
1: Man, that dude, that is awesome. There's so much here that I want to dig into, um, especially this, this historical data piece. But first I want to touch on yeah. you relocated a buck that was displaced from a hurricane. So I hunt a good bit uh, down in South Alabama impacted by hurricanes typically if we get a hurricane down there it's going to be early in September and man that can wreak havoc if you've got your stands up already or anything like that you can lose I mean we've lost tree stands in the past you can lose a ladder stand we've had a ladder stand just absolutely crumpled underneath yep. a tree before I'm curious how you yep. refound that buck like what did you do to relocate him because most guys may not be dealing with hurricanes but but they've they're definitely having to relocate deer um you know later into the season than yep. then they maybe want to September, even early October, trying to find them again. What'd you do to find them?
2: Yep. So I would be lying. if Okay. So I want to say something high level and you know, that makes me sound awesome, but <laughs> sheer blunt force and boot miles. I mean, you know, I don't have a magic recipe. It's really, I run a lot of trail cameras and I walk a lot of miles in a year. Um, I'd be lying if I said there weren't a few tricks of the trade. For that particular buck, I was definitely keeping an eye on similarly stem-counted areas that had his same topographic line, I guess you'd call it. You know, that particular buck likes to bet at a certain height, certain elevation. Here it's all flat ground, but for him, he likes to bet around 50 feet above what the average is for that property. So, um, there were only really a few humps, uh, on that whole, uh, public parcel that I relocated this eight point on. It's actually not the eight point we were previously speaking about. Um, it's, it's a whole different eight point, uh, that I won't probably won't be hunting until the end of October, but, uh, But I have relocated him, and uh, he actually moved to a whole nother ridge. Well, I I call it, you know, down here in the south what we call a ridge, guys would laugh at, but it's a hump and a swamp. But, you know, the whole uh, elevation for the piece is around 200 feet, and there's three specific humps or ridges, I guess you'd call them. They have acorns on them, so I call them ridges. But there's three of these uh, ridgebacks that are 255 feet. And he likes that 250, 245, you know, foot range, and so I I keyed in on those other humps, knowing that was his preference. In fact, the first hump I went to had magnolias on it, which is a weird tree to find in the woods. He likes to rub those in past years, and that's where I actually found him living. I hung up. I found a, a huge signpost rub uh, last year on that same uh, magnolia hump. Uh, it's on my page. You probably know it's like a this magnolia, like five magnolia trees in a clump and they're just shredded up to about space high. But uh, I relocated over to that area and, and found him living on the far end of that. So, you know, I think having some intimate knowledge of that buck definitely helped me find him knowing his, you know, his habitat preference and his elevation preference. But I would be lying if I said there was any kind of trick other than running a lot of cheap cheapo cameras and walking a lot of boot miles and making sure you pay attention to the sign you're seeing you know that particular deer like shrub magnolias like i said so that's a something that sticks out um uh he's got a great rack but his track is two and a seven eighths inch with no uh with no uh stagger really so you know when you find the track if you can Find a track that matches his track and a rub that matches his tree at the elevator. I and mean, you pretty much got your, you know, your
1: deer. I hung my camera and it was him. Man, that, that is so. That is such a good piece of intel that folks can uh, put in my pocket or put in their pocket. I'll put it's it in mine as always well. always that
2: way, you know. Yeah. yeah. It don't mean he's not out there right now rubbing a cedar, but that's what he favors, you know.
1: Right. But that's, I mean, still just the fact you go from, you know, you lose him to, okay, let me step back. I know he liked to bed here. He he used he was doing yep. this. So let me find something similar, similar stem count, similar cover type. You yep. know, you know he likes the magnolias. Similar elevation, and then boom, you found him. Like you you say it it was brute force and and you know some luck involved. But man, it it sure sounds like there was a lot of skill and knowledge of that deer that went into that.
2: Yeah, I think it was more just um, more than maybe maybe more than skill it's like experience Just from maybe finding a buck in the past. Yeah. Cause I can, when I specifically found that eight point, I reflected back on a, a different buck I killed called the Hulk. He lived in a cedar swamp and when I found him again, after he relocated, he was one of my hard summer lessons. You know, I found him in the summer. It was all dream struck. And uh, like everybody else, I was crying about the fake October lull when he disappeared. So, (laughs) uh, you know, if you're not following October bucks, you're going to have one hell of a lull, right? So that was me then. Ended up relocating him in another cedar swamp like three miles away and thought that was crazy and and realized the power of preference, you know, where he wants to bed. He's going to find it if it's 500 yards or five miles. That's likely where you're going to find them, you know.
1: Right, right. It's the kind of stuff he's learned that he, he can, is, that he can, you know, be in and I guess not be disturbed or have all the conditions that he's looking for. Um, let's talk yeah, about I the. Think
2: the books are, I was just gonna say I think the bucks are on like a circuit, you know from from my findings, my grandfather's findings, and then further, I've been educating myself with a lot of online resources, some of these deer labs and stuff, and. What I've deduced is that these bugs have a large core area, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred acres, and they they just work on a circuit. They they go from one area to another. It might be season to season or week to week. I think it depends on the animal, but um, they never just stay behind Aunt Susie's house. You know, they're all <laughs> right. those might, but bugs have a larger a larger area. I think
1: right. That's what I find. Right, man. Let let's go into that historical data piece and you mentioned scrapes and how they play into your processes. I'm looking at, you know, your um, trail camera pictures on your profile and stuff. Like it's obvious that scrapes play a a big role in, you know, in your scouting and your trail camera data. So um, what, what kind of trail cameras are you, are you running? First of all, you mentioned you run the cheapo ones.
2: Yeah. So I run a uh, full disclosure. I have a handful of different trail cameras because over the years, you know, for Christmas, my girls might've bought me a moultrie or Cabela's or, uh, you know, so I have a handful of hodgepodge here and there, but for the most part, um, like I said, I have a handful of different cell cameras just from being gifted. I bought 12 five point cell cameras and I'm down to nine. Um, I hate to talk smack about a company, but they're just soft plastic. You know, they're not durable. So down to nine of those. Um, so I'm just over a dozen on the cellular cameras. And those are all on what I call reactionary locations, which are primarily scraped. Some of my cell cameras are in bedding um, or they get moved to bedding. But my cellular cameras are for data that I need here and now. Like I got a buck, this old man Earl, I call him. Uh, you know, I'm in the Carolinas. Never seen a 200-pound buck here. This thing's probably 250. He's huge. So, oh my God. Uh, You know, he's coming in like clockwork. I've got my cell camera there. Uh, it's just a matter of getting in there and sticking him. I've already threw one sit at him, and uh, but so um, I use my cell cameras for the here and now for because your historical data is historical data on bucks that you know. You, there's no way you can anticipate bucks that are going to show up out of the blue. So because of housing developments or coyotes or hunting pressure, or who knows logging a buck could just show up. And so that's what those cell cameras are for. Those are for the here and now data. In addition to that, I run TASCO eight megapixel SD cameras. I get a five pack for 99.99 at Sam and I
1: run uh, <laughs>
2: i say, but I run, I do actually run over a hundred of those.
1: Holy smokes, man. That's, that is a lot. Wow.
2: Yes, but, but it's a set them and forget them scenario. I'm never pulling the data the same year I hang them. I'm never worrying about hunting deer the same year I find them. And those cameras are cheap. It's okay if a bear eats them. If someone steals them, fine, take it. Good luck. Have fun with it. You know what I mean? Right. You deserve it for finding it. So <laughs> right. it's 20 bucks. You know, Look, if you can find my camera, you can have it. That's the challenge <laughs> I put out there. So uh, take it. Uh, enjoy. Kill a big one with it. So that's, that's the thing, you know. So they're cheap, and uh, that's just how I view it, man. I run a lot of them because for me down here in the South, finding a mature buck is hard. Um, I'll give you an example. You know, on my SD cameras, And my regular cameras, you know, 120 cameras out there for a year in three states, 200 miles between my furthest two cameras. And this year, I think I had five summer bucks that were shooters, what I consider a shooter mature. And I have another five bucks that I'm expecting historically um, to show up as long as I didn't get hit by a car or something. So that's a lot of cameras for 10 bucks. Five of those bucks I've already lost. So that's a lot of cameras for five opportunities, but that's how it is in the South. You know, they're not, there's not a buck on every thousand acre parcel. That's a mature buck. You know, it's just not with all the dog hunting pressure and, um, the hunting pressure here, Brown is down. You get six tags. It's, you know, and then I hunt in South Carolina. It's even worse there. You get five buck tags and, I think you can buy endless doe tags. I forget what the limit is, but then if you're a landowner down there, they give them to you. So, um, the hunting pressure is substantial. It's not like a lot of people have ever seen. And so, uh, to find a mature buck, you have to cover a lot of ground. And so for me to do that and not still have a day job and not be divorced, (laughs) I have to take my, I have to do what I have to do. And I take those and i put them out, and, I, and I've expanded on my grandfather's technique, which was historical historical buck sightings. You know, he used to tell me if a big buck was in a meadow on Halloween night, you better be in that meadow next year on Halloween night because he's coming back. It was proven over and over again, and so um, now I really have proven it with just counting with thousands of trail cameras, pictures, you know, from one year to the next where they show up within the same week, and uh, I, I would say uh, that's kind of a little blurb on the uh, historical data for me. How I use that, I try to identify a window of opportunity at a scrape location. So for me, I'm keying in on a doe group that's in that area. Or usually, if I build a scrape, it's a couple of doe groups using that same location. Uh, you'll know because when one shows up, she'll damn club the other one in the head to get rid of it. So you got two two doe two, two doe groups that they're fighting. So usually, I try to find a location with at least two or three doe groups. They're going to share. A community scrape that I make um, and then I will key in from there and try to start gathering information on when those those are going to to estrus and that in itself is going to probably be an entirely different podcast because there's so much information on it but some of the things I use to identify that timing is for example the inactivity of the scrape itself I have Usually community scrape activity 12 months a year, except during peak estrus, the scrape turns off. That's a really good way to find out when your peak estrus is. Bucks begin to check, scent check those does from further away. They stop hitting your scrapes. They stop hitting your vines. They start, you know, more just drifting leeward, those bedding zones and those bedding trails and scent checking entrance trails instead of scrapes. And when your when your scrape uh, turns off, that's a really good indication that your estrus is kind of reaching its peak. That's not an exact date, so from there I also layer in other information like spawn drops. I use stump sprouts and some other techniques to key in on the does in the early spring when they're. Uh, lactate or about to lactate or about to fawn drop they'll really pound on my stump sprouts and I can usually catch a fawn the first day it's born so I can back date from when a fawn is born and kind of get an idea of when that doe was impregnated. I can take that information and I can overlay it with historical buck sighting if a mature bug passes your camera on the same week that that fawn was, you know, that doe was impregnated There's a good chance that week was her standing estrus day. And so your chasing phase probably led up to that. And I think a lot of guys think the chasing phase is peak rut and it's not
1: right. Right, man. You're right. There's a whole other podcast there. We're going to have to go ahead and schedule that one because holy smokes. <laughs> that And that we got into that when we talked on the phone, that's such an intriguing topic. Like I definitely want to learn more there, but uh, you mentioned that you're making um, you're making these, yep. these scrapes, right? So talk to me a little bit about what goes into making an effective mock scrape, because I've heard, I've used mock scrapes a decent bit. Sometimes you have one that takes off. Sometimes I have one that just never gets touched um, and I've I've heard a lot of people in the South just kind of you know poo-poo the idea even of using mock scrapes. They're like, ah, they don't they don't work down here. Like, yeah, you see them working yep. up and in the Midwest. They're, they're not going to work down here though. <laughs> so tell me about your process for they doing. Work. It. Oh
2: yeah, they work. It's something that I've done for a very long time. So essentially, I guess uh, if a mock scrape is not a community scrape, and I don't I don't want to like hurt anybody's feelings here, but if a mock scrape does not become a community scrape, it's your fault. And I've been that victim of my own doing a thousand times, at least. I'm currently running 41 mock scrapes. So I have a lot of them out there and I can tell you that all 41 of them are community. If they're not, I kill them immediately uh, because I did something wrong and that's why it's not a community scrape. And there's really three major ingredients that you need to make the community well I'll say four one is the location that's kind of twofold I count it as two because the location has to be an area for me that has security cover on all four sides surrounding it like a like an inner edge of a clear cut or a clearing inside of a thicket but a clearing I mean you know the size of two pickup trucks not the size of your house just a small opening surrounded by thickets is one of the main rules for me in the South. In the Adirondacks, when I was back home, bucks would come up out of the off the hillside, and they would hit a mock scrape in the middle of a cornfield, they would, <laughs> like you see on TV. Right. They will not do that here. They will not walk out and hit a scrape in the open here. They just won't. And I have a hard time getting bucks, mature bucks, does and stuff will, but I have a hard time getting mature bucks to hit a mock scrape that only has cover on three sides. And I, I attribute that to the hunting pressure here. Um, I do. I mean, it's, you know, especially in South Carolina where I hunt. It's, you got a rifle season that comes in eight doesn't go out until February almost. And those bucks are not, you know, they're just not going to feed in a food plot that doesn't have screening and they're not going to hit a scrape that doesn't have cover around it. So that's the south. That's what I run into with the screening. The other thing on location is the doe groups the best community scrape is going to be a scrape that has multiple doe groups using it. And again, one of the key indicators is you hang a camera on it. If you get two does that fight, uh, shouldn't take more than a couple of weeks. You're going to see one doe chase another doe off. You know, you have two doe groups using that scrape location. Uh, I love areas where I can identify my does. Like you've seen my page. I have seven pie deer I'm chasing around and I have, A doe with a black face, a doe with a black leg, a doe that is permanently stuck in this blue phase. And so, you know, I love does that I can identify for that reason, but sometimes you don't get that. You just have to pay attention to their body language. And, you know, if you see two older does fighting at the scrape, you know, you have a good location. Um, You combine the multiple doe groups with the security cover, then there's really a the third, which I think is the most important factor, which is lack of human sense. Hmm. I, I don't know how guys do it out west. I see things on the internet where a guy builds a mock scrape and his black laps are running around his legs and it's out in the middle of an opening and it's maybe it's a tree that's cut into a post. And I'm like, and then, then it cuts in, scene and you see like this 180 rubbing on it. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> Where is that? Because where I live, like, that, that is not the case. So um, human scent is the biggest thing. And what I will say is I built nine mock, eight or nine mock scrapes in a row, learning this lesson the hard way, and none of them took off. And I finally realized that I was laying my backpack on the ground while I was doing it. And I wasn't using rain to my advantage. It was just a dry week, beautiful day, go in, you know, sweating my ass off, got my backpack on the ground, you know, just wearing, you know, sneakers uh, and and not paying any attention to my touch sense everywhere. And then those deer come back and here where it's super pressured, they immediately associate that as intrusion to you know, danger. And so um, if you've seen my post, there's been a few instances where I've had some does on on the other end of that. When you install a mock scrape here and it's effective, it's in the right location and you install a licking branch, a natural licking branch that you harvested that has deer scent on it um, and you hang it. That's the only scent I use is a natural vine. I'll, I'll pee in the scrape itself myself to start it but I never use any kind of forehead gland or any kind of powder or anything like that I just I harvest a vine when I'm post-season scouting I put them behind the wood pile and then I hang them when I find these locations and I pee in the scrape and that's it but I do it literally moments before a rainstorm or during a rainstorm and you've seen probably a few of my posts if you haven't whoever's listening should check it out But I had one doe I thought was going to starve to death in the scrape because it was like three days she killed a lithium battery and a solar panel because she was, her and her her other doe and a mom and a father, they were so obsessed with how that licking branch got had deer scent on it. (laughs) (laughs) It was hilarious. I literally was like, I might have to take these videos down if this thing starves to death in my (laughs) scrape because... (laughs) <laughs> she was obsessed and, and that's the other end of the stick. When you don't get a mock scrape that takes usually it's because you have a bad location or you boogered it up with your scent in the South, where they're, they're just used to that pressure. And, uh, but when you do get it right, man, they, it's crazy. They, uh, they love it. It's, they, it certainly works in the South, at least in Virginia, North Carolina and South Carolina, it 100% works. Um, you know, and I, and I relocate scrapes. I don't know if, if we talked about that when we talked, but when I do find a natural scrape, I will usually either, if it's in the location I don't plan to hunt, I'll dig the dirt up and keep it in my freezer. And I'll use that to start a scrape sometimes. Or I'll use that in the fall as a, you know, a scent bomb. I'll just take that dirt out of the freezer and dump it when I climb up in my tree. Um, but I also have moved a scrape that doesn't work for me based on like the thermal. If it's like a place with, uh, whatever you call the flash word today, hub, the thermally driven circulation, you know, where you got maybe the wind blowing into the mouth of an oxbow or something. It's swirling. Uh, when you get a place like that, what I'll do is I'll actually dig that dirt up and I'll fall a tree on top of that scrape location. If it's public, I'll just drag some, some brush and bury that scrape location under brush and I'll take that dirt and I'll move it, you know, just off to the side where the wind is better for me and the deer I find will still hit that scrape, even if it's 20 yards away, they'll, they'll find it and they'll hit it. But you know, I'm very meticulous about my scent at that site. Very meticulous.
1: Right. So what are you doing to keep your scent out of there other than, you know, not, not wearing sneakers and and not dropping your backpack. You wearing rubber boots, rubber gloves. What does that look like?
2: Yep, so I'm going in ahead of time, and I'm preparing an access route, first of all, because it doesn't do you any good if you're walking through chest-high grass, and you're rubbing all down the grass on the way in, and you got branches rubbing down your back and hitting in the face. They're going to smell that. So I'll go in during my post-season scouting if I find a good, scrape location. I want to prep the access route, first of all. How am I going to get in here when I have a rainy day? And usually that just involves me going through with my hands in February, because who cares in February? Those deer smell you, they're going to come back anyway. So I'll go through in February, break branches, whatever. I probably have leather gloves on that time of year for poison ivy, but I'll break branches and make a path and have a backpack sprayer. I'll use roundup and make a path through the grass and stuff in the summer. Um, And then when the time is right, uh, when it gets a little closer to season, if I haven't already installed my scrape, generally I'll go back and hang a new vine this time of year, September-ish, and uh, I want to be able to walk in there with just my rubber boots touching the ground only. Rubber boots don't come in my house, and I don't want to go all uh, crazy on people with scents, but my rubber boots don't come in my house. They stay in the shop. Um, I don't pump gas in them. I don't, you know, I don't wear them in the truck. I, I keep them in the tub and I get there, I get out, I put my boots on, and that's the only thing that touches the ground. And even then, I make sure, like I said, I'll catch it when it's sprinkling, about to pour. I'll get in there, it'll be sprinkling on me, I'll do my business, I'll hang the new vine, I might dump some dirt out, I'll, you know, I usually carry a little bottle, like a, almost like a Elmer's Blue bottle full of Roundup, so I can just squirt it into the scrape, to kill any weed, and uh, I'll pee in it, just kind of a ritual I always do. I make sure my backpack never touches the ground. Only thing that touches the ground is my rubber boots and it'll be raining very soon and the deer will come within an hour or two after I leave. Usually a doe will come to investigate and in that first encounter where that doe first comes in, will make you or break you. If she comes in and smells you here in the Carolinas, there is a very high likelihood that scrape will never become community mm. man. So, that's just how. That's been my finding. Right, and I challenge anybody to try it other ways and let me know, and I'll change my statement if they find a better way. But that's what I found, you
1: know. Yeah, no, I dig that. No, man. I will. I mean, that's, yeah, that's good. That's good. Are you? You're not putting any forehead forehead gland scent on there or anything like that on the licking branch.
2: No, no, I'm out. I find them in the in the in the fall. I will find them, and, and there's been instances. In fact the last week of October, I'm going to be hunting a scrape where I'm expecting two four-year-olds to show up. And so that last week of October, they come every year that week. If they're alive, they'll both be there. I'm very confident. I grew them from spike horns, So I know they're coming and, uh, I'm going to be there waiting for them. But that, that scrape actually, um, I did not have a natural bind to hang there. And so, I guess I should have opened with that, but a great way to make it if you don't have it. And let's say for me, I had to learn when I was poor. I was really poor growing up and I didn't have money to go out and buy, you know, back then it was expensive to try to buy any kind of forehead gland. I think Smokies was around back then, but it it was expensive anyway. And so what I do, what I found is if you just take a vine, whatever they like for your area, for me, any kind of vine works, all the vines work. Poison Ivy works best. But that can be really hard to find the, you know the size of your thumb and then there's danger handling it and stuff. But that's my preferred vine. Um, but I, this this particular scrape is my best scrape, and it has a piece of poison ivy hanging about the size of my thumb. It's like six years old. And when I hung it there, there's no scent on it. It was just a piece I cut with snips, and I hung it at a five way intersection. It was thick security cover where five trails intersected. And it was where some sto- a little bit of storm damage happened. And so I hung this vine there where the deer would naturally just kind of hit their heads on it as they were passing. And it was, my intention was to create a licking vine that I was going to carry to another property to install. Lo and behold, that fall, damn deer made a car hood type crepe under that vine. So I was like <laughs> holy crap what did I just stumble onto?" to so you can do it at just a major deer intersection picture like a five corners with no stop light and no there and uh, they'll bump their heads on it and it'll turn into something awesome but that, that was more of a, a one off but that definitely has happened more than once
1: right man that's a you really know, good idea that. I've got, I've got deer in the backyard here where I live and, um, you know, they're kind of off limits. We watch them. They're fun, whatever. Um, but I've never thought about hanging a vine back there to just create, you know, that activity and then move it.
2: Yeah. So, um, full disclosure, you know, I also, um, I live in more of like a city area where we can't, I can't, I can't really hunt behind my house. I mean, I don't have enough acreage if I were to shoot a deer with a bow, it would certainly leave my property and I can't just go cracking off a rifle, right? So I'm kind of in a situation where I'm not able to hunt out back on limited acreage. But what I can do is um, we have a little uh, feeder in the back where we sit at the kitchen table and we watch our coons and possum and deer and stuff hit this little feeder. And uh, I do have wh- what I what I actually do at that feeder is I hang a vine over it. Whenever I install these vines, I always install them with a piece of paracord and like a carabiner so they can be moved easily. So one of my tactics in the fall is I like to play musical vines and I like to move them around. I find that it makes the deer freak out and makes the doe become obsessed. The more you can get a doe to be obsessed with something, the more inner digital sense that she's going to leave in that location by just standing there and standing there and standing there. And my opinion is when the pre rut comes and those bucks start to prioritize where they want to stage on these does, they're, they're looking at that concentration of interdigital scent. That's how they can tell where the doe spends their most time. So one of my tactics for nailing down historical data is making sure you have a location with a doe where you can increase that inner digital scent, whether it's stump sprouts, whether it's a licking vine, that's a new one um, that's got her freaked out. Like in that one video where she, I thought she was going to starve to death in the damn scrape. Uh, anytime you can do that, you can ensure when a mature bug does pass your camera, when he does show up on that scrape, he, sh- he might be there for three days. It doesn't do you any good if he hits your scrape on the third day, your whole your whole historical data is out the window. That buck has to hit your scrape on the first hour, on the first day that he's on your property, for you to even count that picture. And one way to do that is when you move these vines, the doe at this time of year can become obsessed. And my opinion is when the bucks come onto your property, like they typically do in the fall to take that doe census or to try to see who's out there, you know, these scrapes are almost like a Tinder account, right? so they come in to see, like, hey, what's up? And uh, if you have just all kinds of interdigital scent there in that one location, my opinion is, my experience has been that those bucks will hit that. The first moment they come onto that property, that is good historical data. You know, if he hits it on the fifth day he's there, it's not doing you a whole hell of a lot of good. I mean, you know, because your fawn drop dates and the other things you start – Again, if you're finding a fawn that's a week old, it can be really hard to nail down uh, your window of opportunity, which is your estrus on your property. You know, buck staging to standing estrus is probably a week, 10 days. And it can be really hard to nail down that week to 10 days if you're, you know, writing down the a fawn that's seven days old and a buck hits your scrape on day three and you start going down a rabbit hole fast. You know, there's certain things, there's certain data points you have
1: to have. You have to have them accurate. Right, right. So when it comes to this. Otherwise, is, you're just guessing. Yep. What's that? Go ahead. Oh,
2: I said otherwise, you're just guessing. Yes, sir.
1: Right, right. When it comes to this historical data, um, you know, I think we got a pretty good idea of how you're acquiring that and like what, what matters to you. How are you keeping track of it year to year? Is this all just in your mind or are you keeping a journal as well? What does that look like?
2: Yep. So, uh, I started out keeping hunt journals and which through like the 90s and 2000s, I kept some hunt journals, which were date and time, wind, what I saw, location, if I harvested something, you know, maybe if I found your tree stand, I'd mark a note down like, Oh yeah, over on Owl's Ridge, you know, there's a guy hunting. I was just trying to take those kind of notes. And then that kind of evolved into, um, I started getting more into the historical information in the earlier 2000s, 2005, 2010, and started paying more attention to dates, exact buck sightings. Started, be, you know, out of necessity. Then other doors started opening where I realized I started I needed to start identifying individual does, really trying to key in on does that are, have distinguishing features. If you can find a doe with a distinguishing feature oh, my God, like that's money because you can really hone in on that doe and you can, you can, uh, if you're able, if you have private land, you can make habitat adjustments, you can plant a food plot, you can do a lot of things to keep a doe in a certain area and keep her from wandering off um, and really key in on her and, and run a lot of cameras on a single deer and, you know, just start putting those. Functions. So I say I have 100 cameras. I mean, I've been running a lot of cameras for a while, and, you know, I have probably 25 does. Uh, I probably have three dozen does that I have very, very, very intimate knowledge on that I have ran. You know, multiple cameras on. Uh, I've ran up to a dozen cameras on a single doe, um, just to fully understand what she's doing, when she's doing it, and looking for things and understanding things like. Rut is standing estrus, not chasing, and understanding that you know when the bucks are hit, stop hitting those scrapes. She's close, and looking at drop, understanding nutrition can impact that. Um, you know, I found that I found that the hard way where I had a doe that was carrying fawns for around 205 days. She was surrounded by soybeans for three years. Then, the following year, they cut down all the soybeans that fall. And the following year, they changed it to tobacco. It was like, I don't know, thousands of acres of tobacco. And that doe ended up having her fawns in like 190 days. So nutrition can play a huge role in it. Um, Little things like that. I've just documented over the years. So how I keep track of it today is um, while I'm in the field, I take hunt notes in my phone, what I saw, when I saw it, and the weather conditions and the date and stuff like that. But now I maintain an Excel spreadsheet, so I have tabs for different properties, and uh, I have my own naming convention, Uh, uh, you know, I use, um, I don't like naming bucks too much. I know I named that buck this week, Old Man Earl, because it's fun, and you just don't get to see those super ancient old bruisers down here in the South too often, but uh, normally I don't like naming bucks publicly, it's not my thing, but I respect it, and I do keep track of them on paper. So the eight point that I was talking about hunting last week of October, that buck, I actually call nine one one. And the reason I call him nine one one is because that was the first buck from the first show group that I found on the ninth property. I started hunting when I lived here. So, um, he just happens to be nine one one, man. That's his name. He was a spike horn. He was a spike horn when I found him and now he's a, a am hoping young eight point, barely, probably 120 inches. So, um, yeah, so, but I don't like, you know, I'm not big on running around saying I'm hunting 9 one or anything. I just, it's each his zone and I respect It's fun. Like I said, I named Earl cause it's fun. So I get the appeal. It's got sex appeal, but, uh, I try not to do that. I try to just keep it, keep it documentative. I keep my properties, the number of properties, the number of my doe group on that property, the bucks that associate to that doe group because, you know, for example, I'm tracking a pair of piebald twins and um, I found a lot of information, you know, when we talk again, I hope to dig into a little bit, but I've really seen some, some, found some crazy things following these does like this stuff. You don't hear a lot of people talking about like uh buck twins. And, hey, I mean, I know I get the science behind it. I understand a doe can have, a pair of twins that have multiple fathers or a single father. But in terms of how those deer relate to each other socially, it doesn't change too much. And I've made some pretty astonishing findings with with what those buck twins do. They disperse a little different than other deer and other bucks. And uh, I'm eager to kind of document that all with these pie balls. I think it'll be fun. So um, they're one and a half this year. So I got one of them, though. He's venturing out. I caught him in a bean field, thing. he's making me nervous, but I hope someone doesn't, I know, I hope someone doesn't stick him, he needs to get his butt back,
1: but. Right, right. Man, one of the things that really sticks out in, in this conversation to me is the number of deer that you found as young bucks, and yet you tracked them through the years. I think we get caught up so often of saying, hey, we're just looking for three and four year old deer or whatever, you know, whatever your target is. Um, it's not very often that I hear guys being like, all right, I found this yearling the next year, here's what he was and sort of tracking them, you know, from an early age. That's a lot of, that's a lot of data on one animal. But then at the same time, you've also got some cameras out that are kind of giving you that most recent intelligence of like, what's going on there right now? Has he shown up yet this year? Like, boom, he showed up yesterday. So it's like tomorrow I'm in the field or today I'm in the field, um, And so combining those two sounds like it's been really instrumental to your strategy overall.
2: Yeah, it has. And I will say that it's crazy because a lot of, you know, I do have those cameras for those reactionary type hunts. Um, But I tell you, I never kill bucks off those those sites. I'm always either hunting a location that I don't have any cameras. Um, uh, For example, I have a spot here in South Carolina that I just got door knocking this year. Um, I'm going to try to hit it on my way back from Florida. I have all my stuff with me. I've never hung a camera there. I have four in my bag, but I've been there twice and both, uh, both times. I found a track that was, you know, three inches wide or so with about a half inch stagger. So where his feet are overlapping. So he's a mature animal and I'm going to try to throw a sit at him on my way back from Florida if, if the weather and timing permits and everything like that. And, I kill a lot of animals where I don't have a camera and like my 10 point last Monday, um, he was, a, he was a good bug. He ended up dressing 192.1 and he had 24 and a half inch main beams, but I, you know, I end up killing a lot of deer like him where I'm expecting a certain animal like my eight that showed up and then he brings a buddy that happens a lot. And, uh, you know, there was no cell camera there. In fact, that's an island that full disclosure, it's kind of a pain in the ass to get to. So I don't want a cell camera out there. I just have a TASCO and, um, you know, my intentions for that first hunt was to wait until I know he's coming, go out there. I had batteries, I had permethrin, I had all that with me to do a full preventative maintenance on that camera while I was there and pull that data and I just happened to kill while I was there. And that happens a lot, you know, it's hmm. never off a cell camera. So when the guys might, I'll give you an example, you know, I'm a family member who was talking to me about what kind of camera to buy. And I told her, you know, I regret getting in the cell camera game because it's been a lot of heartache and pain. It's cost me a lot of money in subscriptions and in hardware. And it's cost me a lot of sits. I'm not one of these guys that likes to sit 50 times to fill four tags. I, will, I would give up hunting if I had to do that. I don't mean it to be facetious, but I can't. When I hunt off cell cameras, the same thing happens. It happens like last Thursday when I threw a sit at, at Earl, the old buck, is I went in there and I saw no old buck. <laughs> and that always happens when I hunt off cell cameras because you're a day late, not a day early, and you have to be a day early. So, for right. me, cell cameras are a little taboo. They're a little, you know, I, I, they, they can make you do a lot of sits and not see anything. So, you think because a 10-pointer showed up this morning, man, I'm going to hunt tonight. And it's just, you know, have fun doing that 38 times.
1: Yeah, yeah, man, that's so, so I, good. I try not to
2: do that. The cell cameras, I feel like, have me jumping through hoops like a circus animal. And I don't like that. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather find a buff that I know is showing up at a certain time. He's doing it year over. I have familiarity with him. I, I have history of getting in and out to service that camera or to prep that tree or to whatever it is. I have a history of being able to get in and out clean to where it doesn't bother that animal, and I've done it for a couple of years. That's the animal I like to kill, and I do that on public if I'm able. I try to find these spots. Nobody will go, and, uh, you know, I try to find, like, that buck earl. I threw a sit at him the other day. Well, he showed up yesterday. I got him on the camera yesterday and this morning. He's back. And uh, I'll post some pictures tonight. But you can tell he's literally sniffed every leaf and every rock and every nut in that entire area twice, looking for any kind of sign of an animal, dog, or coyote, or human. He's he's checking, 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 checking. But I get him at 8, 11, 1, 5, 7. He's bedded there. And uh, he just happened to not be there the day I hunted him the other day. But I came in it's a pain in the ass. But I came in from the creek with my canoe, and I climbed a tree on the edge of the bank. And I just let my canoe float off with a 50-foot uh, paracord to it. It was just downstream on the court. So uh, I let it drift off, and I climbed up in my tree with my saddle. When I was ready to go, I climbed down, I grabbed the paracord, I pulled my canoe in, I climbed in, I drifted off. And that buck came back yesterday and today doing a full bloodhound routine. And I did not contaminate that area whatsoever. And that's why he came yesterday and that's why he came back today. And that line of movement he has going across that land bridge has never been pressured by people. And so he feels comfortable there in the daytime. And so I'm hoping to get back in there and and have a crack at him. Um, And I'm, you know, it's a pain to get in there with a canoe but not having your ground set found is priceless.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, I'm
2: because you know, he, he's at that age, man, where he was sniffing everything.
1: Right. Right. I I'm sitting here, man. I I've, I've got so many notes that I want to talk to you about next time. Um I'm I'm super oh, yeah. excited about so much, but I you know, one of the things that we talked about briefly on the or I guess pretty at length on the, on the phone the first time we talked was about the hunt, the hunt journals that, that your grandfather kept and how that has yep. really informed the way that you hunt today. And I know you've mentioned you're going to be doing more with that, so I don't want to steal any of that thunder. But is there anything from that that was kind of an aha moment for you that you'd be willing to share that you're like, hey, here's, here's a giant takeaway, you know, that you picked up from those journals?
2: Yeah, a big takeaway is uh, one thing that I uh, was able to determine – that gave me a leg up that my grandfather was able to determine that I kind of took the ball and ran with was a mature buck's range can vary. What Mm -hmm. I find here in the south is where I, what I call is average deer density or above. I don't find that that impacts a mature buck's core area with respect to increasing it. Let me explain what I mean. So if you're where I live, where let's say we have 10 deer per square mile, and, or we're in South Carolina where I hunt, where there's, you know, 7 trillion deer per square mile, uh, <laughs> that, that buck is going to have a core area. I find, you know, people can, can dispute this if they like, but my findings have been that buck has an area of 1,000 to 1,500 acres. It's very rarely more than that but it's also very rarely less than a thousand. Whereas a doe has a much smaller core area and where increased deer numbers don't decrease a buck's core area or increase it. I do find that increased deer numbers shrink a doe's area. Um, Down here in the South where we have a lot of does, you know, they, I literally have seen a doe have fawns inside of a, patch of wildflowers on the side of the highway where it was just like morning glories. And you're like, what the heck is a doe? And they're just eating the bulbs and the flowers. Like a doe will set shop up and have ponds on roses. You know what I mean? They, when there's high deer numbers, they're not, they'll just set up camp anywhere they have to. Right. And so the more deer you get, the doe area tends to shrink. The more food you get, the doe area tends to shrink that's different down here. Low deer population density areas, Northern PA up where we were in the Adirondacks, Maine. What you're gonna find is, what I found in the Adirondacks was, those have a larger area because they will move for food. And even in the Adirondacks, they do you know, yarding and things like that. So um, you start getting into more winter survival, travel. Um, but you have those that are in pockets in a place like the Adirondacks where you know, 60,000 acres, all the deer are gonna be on 50 acres just scattered around, right? So you have to find the pockets of does. And to do that, those bucks have to travel great distances to check those scrapes versus down here in the south, where those bucks are operating within that range. And, uh, uh, I don't know if that answered your question, but. Yeah. Man, that, that is really, really Basically, good. Yeah. Awesome Basically, takeaway. That's, that's what I, I find with these boxes. Um, you know, they, they have a specific range. And so that's another way that I can, running a lot of cameras, you can triangulate on a box and find his core range by running cameras. When you, The first question you asked me was like, I said, there's no magic recipe, but it's, you know, if you have, if you find a nice 10 point box, on say a thousand acres of public and you're able to run a you know, you have 12 cameras in your truck and you run a trap line through, you know, the center of that property or whatever your favorite camera installation technique is. And you're going to start getting that buck on some cameras and you're going to not get them on others. So you're going to have to go back and you're going to want to leave the cameras that got them. And you're going to want to move the ones that didn't and just kind of hone in on that deer's core area. Sometimes one buck I'm going to hunt this year, his core area only covers one, it crosses one little corner of this public where probably the 40 acres I'm going to hunt him on, he crosses that 40-acre corner. But every camera on that whole, I think it's 932 acres, I do not get that buck. He just literally hits that one corner. There. He hits that one scrape. He hits that one camera. And that's it. So, um, you know, you can, as long if you can, if you can figure that out, you can prevent yourself from hunting hunts unnecessarily. You know, uh, I don't always one sit kill a mature buck like I did last week, but it's, it's very common. I would say 80% of my deer I killed within the first three sits because I'm hunting historical data and, I'm hunting the right weather and the right wind and the right time, which is the biggest thing to me is the timing. Um, And, or I'm at a place like hunting old man Earl with the Creek thermals and the Creek access where dude, the wind doesn't matter as long as it's not ripping that day, I can get in and out of there anytime I want to hunt him as many times as I want to hunt him. And uh, he's never going to smell where I was. So um, I do have a few, I love, Creek thermals, and I do have a few spots where I can, I can slip in and out like that, and and I just
1: love those opportunities. Right, right. Well, man, this has been so good. Like I said, we need to go ahead and schedule another one because this has been this has been awesome. But if folks want to learn more from you, see what all you're doing, you're putting out some really excellent content. Where all can they find you?
2: I'm just uh, like I said, I just came out kind of from under a rock last year and started sharing some stuff. So forgive me for that. Um, I definitely have a lot of buck pictures and stuff. I'm gonna post. I, will be sharing some stories from past hunts here after this season. I don't like posting. One thing I hate is when I'm on social media and, you know, it's like the day before season starts and someone posts a buck from 2012. You're like, ah, like don't do that, you know. So <laughs> once the season, I just <laughs> it's always a little, uh, a little cringy. So after this season, I'll post some prior uh, stories and some buck pictures on Instagram. That's the best place to find me for now. It's uh, Carolina underscore Reaper 315 on Instagram. And uh, that's really, like I said, the best place to find me for now. Um, My email's on my link tree. You can hit me up there. And, uh, yeah, whether you you follow me or not, I
1: I appreciate the fact that you even come and you read one article. Thank you. Definitely, guys. Go check it out. I think you're going to be – very impressed by the content and you're going to learn a lot as i think we have here today so brandon thanks for your time man i appreciate it have a safe drive the rest of the way home
2: thank you i really appreciate it josh
1: that's all for today's episode thank you so much for tuning in if you dig this show please go subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcast and if you can leave us a review i would really appreciate that until next week let's keep doing things the southern way